welcome to episode 19 of Literary Disco, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. This week's episode in two parts. First, our traditional bookshelf revisit, in which Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our overcrowded bookshelves to talk about. So overcrowded. It's so overcrowded. <laughs> I, it's ridiculous. I have to move. And then in our second part, we will head on down south to Savannah, Georgia, to discuss the nonfiction book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrent. I'm actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pistel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Hi. Hello there. So before we begin our bookshelf revisit, I thought we should take a moment to discuss social media, uh, which is something that we always say we're going to do, but we always forget (laughs) to do. And that is just to remind our listeners that we have started a Goodreads club or Goodreads group. Is that what it's called? Group, group. Group page? We don't know. We We don't know. No. no. We're actually, I mean, all of us are like fairly good at social media, but we're not amazing at it, but we're trying to be better. So we do have a Facebook page and we do have a Twitter feed. And I mentioned at the end of every episode, but if you haven't liked our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter, take a moment now to go and click on that because uh, having those numbers increase really helps us stay in touch with you guys and uh, to see how, you know, get some feedback and to see how to change our episode structure. For instance, we got a message uh, on our Facebook page, I believe, just recently, asking us to mention the name of our bookshelf revisits again after we're done talking about them because we have a tendency to only mention the title or the author once and then move on. Uh, and we so also that's sort wonderful of, feedback. We have, we have a tendency also, I don't know if, if you're aware of it, is to talk about a book and then not talk about it at all. Uh, (laughs) maybe that's that that's typically when julia says i read a great book and i say that reminds me of a time i lost my socks and then we go forward the other thing about the tooth fairy is not really a fairy at all you may miss any actual content so we'll right we will repeat them and we'll put them on our social media which we kind of haphazardly do and we just discussed before we started recording if you follow us on Twitter, you can witness us making fun of each other because we all simultaneously <laughs> operate the Twitter feed. So that, that's a good right. time for all. And I, I think a, a good contest, and I don't know how you'd, we'd figure out a winner, is if you can figure out who has written each Twitter post, if you figure it, it out, we will hard. give you a free gift. No, th- okay, it better be <laughs> If it includes really... the word fucktard, it's Todd. <laughs> that's, a, that's a dead yes, word. If it's nice, it's me. I'm not sure Ryder right. knows how to use the Twitter. If, if there's not been an update, if, if there's been no update in a week, that's Ryder. That's Ryder's update. And uh, if you want to be uh, our friends on Friendster, go ahead, fire up the flux capacitor, take it back to 2003, and we'll meet you there. All right, so I'll start off with the uh, bookshelf revisit. Uh, you guys know this, but I don't know if I've ever mentioned on the show that um, when we were at Bennington, I did my MFA, uh, my lecture, on Ernest Hemingway. And so I'm a big Hemingway fan, but I actually am mostly a fan of his short stories. So for my bookshelf revisit today, I wanted to bring up this book that um, I'm not sure if it's still in print, but it's definitely available. You can find it easily on Amazon. But it's a collection of Ernest Ernest Hemingway short stories uh, that is just called The Nick Adams Stories. Mm -hmm. And what this collection does is um, Ernest Hemingway wrote a lot of short stories that focused on a fictional version of himself, basically. It was a young man who was named Nick Adams, who was from Michigan, who then um, went to World War One and fought and came back and was a writer. And, you know, it parallels a lot of Hemingway's real life. 
And this collection takes all of those stories, which he wrote throughout his entire career. He kept returning to this character of Nick, Nick Adams. And this collection takes them and puts them in chronological order of Nick Adams' life. Mm-hmm. So it starts cool. with Nick Adams as a kid, dealing with his father, who was a doctor, just like Hemingway's real father was a doctor. And um, his father's suicide, just like Hemingway's real father's suicide. There's so many great parallels. And um, these are some of his most personal and most emotional stories, uh, dealing with the war. And it's a great introduction if you've never read Hemingway to begin with. It's a great way to get started. And um, it's just a really fun collection. It was one of the things that drew me into Hemingway. I had had read Sun Also Rises, uh, I guess, when I was a freshman in undergraduate in college. And then, and I loved it, but I didn't really move on to other stuff until um, I was dating a girl who introduced me to this book, and she gave me this collection, and I read it, and I was instantly hooked, and became a huge Hemingway fan, and, you know, ended up writing my thesis on it. See, that's different between you and me, Ryder. I I mean, there's a few. My Incredible Body is another one. Is that Mm. any girlfriend I ever had, never, prior to the woman who became my wife, my lovely wife, Wendy, they never introduced me to anything other than, like, Zima... And uh, wine coolers. Zima and- <laughs> still around. Well, I don't even know what no. it is. Is that a drink? You don't See, know Zima, you, dude. We are oh so old. Oh my god. Oh my god. <laughs> Zima. Right, so talk about taking the flux capacitor all the way back. Right. Zima was basically Zima was bad a malt liquor. Up. It was bad Seven Up. It <laughs> right. was like Seven Up that had curdled. Ew. But it, it was, was it was a malt liquor that was clear and tasted like Seven Up. So imagine you had a Seven Up, you pissed in it. Let it ferment for about nine years, and it then you drank alcoholic. it. Yeah, it, it was it was really huge oh, among so. the sixteen to twenty four year old female set. Right, of like people who like I want to drink alcohol, but want it to taste nothing like alcohol. Yeah, I want it's it like to that, you know. taste like curdled lemon lime urine. I this hard it, to oh, yeah, it, it was the most yeah. disgusting stuff. And for at, when they first came out with it, which was like nineteen ninety three. You'd be at a bar, and they'd have Zima girls that would come around, and they'd let you have a shot of Zima mm-hmm. to try and get you to buy a bottle of it. And they were always, like, the and, and, and granted, these are not, like, bars, like, you know, dive bars. This is the bar at the Black Angus yeah, yeah. or the bar at the Red Onion or wherever. And they'd, they'd walk around, and they'd let you take shots of it and say, hey, you want to buy a bottle of Zima? And the bottles were, um, they, made, they made it look like soda bottles, basically, too. That was this horrible This is where stuff. we're getting off track, guys. This is not right. <laughs> this, is, this, is, this, this is By the way, talking about the bottles that Zima came in, <laughs> should we just bring, like, how well, about, how you about guys, now I'll, I'll talk about Crystal Pepsi? We can go into that. That's a whole nother. Now, the audience needs... The audience needs to go look at the old Zima commercials to understand two things. Do you remember Tequiza? Of course. Um, (laughs) How dare you? If you want to get a snapshot of what 1993 was like for me, go look at a Zima commercial on YouTube where guys are wearing vests and they're drinking on rooftops, apparently, for some some reason. And everyone's listening to bad hip-hop and drinking Zima. That That was me. Sigma Phi Epsilon, Cal State Northridge, wow. 1993. 1993, I was 10 and totally unironically wearing those, like, wolf howling shirts because I wanted to save the wolves. That was me at that oh, same God. time. Aww. Yeah, that's sweet. Yeah. I had the floppy I had the floppy mushroom haircut and was starting the first season of Boy Meets Aww. World. So. Wow, what an interesting Aww. time. Todd's is the most pathetic. <laughs> yeah, it is. It I love is. how you slipped that in. Yeah, Todd's true. Todd's is the saddest. That's just... Yeah, I wore a lot of backwards baseball caps in 1993. Like, that was really? my big fashion selection. See, I was discovering grunge and, unfortunately, really baggy clothing that I continued to wear until 2000. Oh, 
Oh, I like, did. The, I was doing the same thing. Everybody yeah. did that though. Yeah, we no, all did that. So, yeah, but I did it on television. It's oh, news. that's a great point. Yeah, I just did it in the San Fernando Valley. Okay, speaking um, of television, um, <laughs> that'll segue into mine. Um, if you're done, Ryder. Nice. Are you done? Yeah. Okay. So I, mine. Oh, let me just say it again. Nick Adams stories by Hemingway. <laughs> Thank Already you, Hemingway. The Nick Adams story collection. Thank you, fans. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so I, mine's a real bookshelf revisit this time in that um, I've read the book before and I found it in a stack of books. Um, I just came across Fahrenheit 451 again, and I realized that I have not read it since I was probably... 14 or so. Have you guys read it? You know, I've never read it. Oh, oh it's my a great God. book. It's such a good book. I, I'm a huge Ray, Ray Bradbury yes. fan. And so I started to reread it. I haven't reread the whole thing. First of all, I realized I don't remember the plot. I only remember the premise, which is a great way to reread a book. You know, it, you still have the suspense of not knowing what the plot is, but you know that you love the premise, which is, for those of you who haven't read it, um, that in the future, which I guess is around now, Firemen don't put out fires. They burn down houses with books in them, and of course, the books themselves. And there's so many, uh, there's so much commentary on media and what it's doing to our brains and how no one's thinking or like enjoying themselves anymore. But the thing about Ray Bradbury is he's so on the nose with this stuff, it is not subtle. It's Mm -hmm. like a girl appears and she's like, no one stops and looks at the grass anymore. This is like page two. Mm-hmm. No one looks at the grass anymore. <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, my God, she's really getting under my skin. I don't look at the grass anymore. But <laughs> somehow in its directness, it is incredible. Like This is what's great about Ray Bradbury. Since he's just up front and doesn't spend any time waffling around these issues, he just gets through everything he wants to say in an incredibly short and well-plotted book. And it's just you know, for anyone who hasn't read it or hasn't read it in a long time, it's five or six bucks. You know, you can get it. You probably read it in a less than a day. It's just a great book. But what really is disturbing to me is that it was written in 1953. And like a lot of great dystopias, everything that he predicts is essentially true. So like there's a scene in it, uh, the main character's wife, he's like, she's lying in bed and, Every night for two years, like he's like, I can't talk to her because she has these tiny, like ear pieces in her ears, and she listens to sounds and music, and that's how she falls asleep, and she can't fall asleep any other way. And of course, your brain is like, oh yeah, you know, her iPod, or at the very least, like her discman or whatever. But it's 1953. He's right. so right. far ahead of time predicting this behavior right. that is very upsetting. And what's upsetting about it is basically that people wrote all these warning books and were there, were doing it. So that's. It was so funny. I remember I had never read Animal Farm oh, until Jesus, uh, yeah. like two. <laughs> it was around 2001. It was actually while I was shooting Cabin Fever, so it was 2001. And I remember sitting on the set. It was right after September 11th, and I was reading. Animal Farm, and in the introduction, whoever had introduced this edition of Animal Farm, they were talking about this sto- the dystopian novel tradition, you know, that George Orwell was a part of, especially with 1984, and they were like, well, even though none of those things ever came to pass, and, and 1984 oh, was not as prescient, and I'm sitting there post-September 11th, reading this introduction going, this introduction is already out of date, and 1984 <laughs> is so much more relevant than it was 10 years ago, you know, because a lot of the ideas of those books keep coming back around, and, and every time you think that, oh, they're not going to be relevant anymore, they predicted the future incorrectly, I think they nailed so many ideas. They just they reached a thematic. Uh, even if they were wrong about the technology or the drugs that we were taking or whatever, 
uh, I think that certainly in terms of the, the thematics, they were spot on. Yeah. And it's stuff that will continue to challenge us and continue the issues that we're going to continue to face. But you know what's interesting is is there's there's these dystopian novels that you don't realize are dystopian that it turned out to be true. For instance, the book The Quiet American by Graham Greene. Graham Greene predicts the entire course of the Vietnam War. Oh, right. Yeah, we've talked about that. You know, I've never read that book. It's a remarkable book. I was thinking about it again the other day. This is not my bookshelf revisit. Um, but I was watching the news talking about um, Israel and Palestine, and someone on the news said, oh, what they need to have here is a third force. And that's the big thing about The Quiet American is the introduction of a third force between the North Vietnamese and the South Vietnamese. And, of course, that, that ended up being the Americans. Um, and that turned out really, really well um, in terms of in terms of yeah. fiction. In terms of fiction, it was great. Um, and films. And, and films, films, yeah. If I just watched been... Platoon again. Oh. I hadn't seen Platoon in so long. And I watched it, and I was like, God, this movie is so far under my skin. I haven't seen that movie in years. Is Tom Berenger now completely over the top, or is he still believable? It's, it's pretty cheesy. But, it's, but you know, it, it feels, the movie as a whole feels very on the nose mm-hmm. and, um, and heavy-handed. I love that movie. I think it's great. I don't care how cheesy it is. You know what makes it cheesy is the voiceover. It's very, oh, right. it's very on the nose, like poetic, like, you know, some part of me is still in a jungle in Vietnam. <laughs> okay, so uh, that bookshelf revisit was Fahrenheit 451 by Bra- Ray Bradbury and also <laughs> Platoon. Pretty good. <laughs> Not bad. Not bad. Not bad. My uh, my bookshelf revisit actually ties in with the book we are reading this week. Um, I'm I'm teaching a class right now and uh, about fiction techniques. Um, and the last book that we're reading this quarter is one of my all time favorite novels, which is Empire Falls by Richard Russo, which won the Pulitzer Prize in I think it was 2002, something like that. Um, but what's fascinating about this Richard Russo novel and why it's my one of my all time favorites is that it has like 11 different points of view, but it's all taking place in one small town. And it's about the minutia of the politics between all these people in this small town and, and how they react to one another, but also about, you know, this common everyday evil that we end up talking about a lot, I think, in, the, in our books um, about, you know, the, the lengths people go to mess up other people's lives, basically. Uh, so I've been rereading Empire Falls for the first time in many years, and I absolutely had no interest in reading this book before my wife told me to read it several years ago because I was like, I don't want to read a book about small-town America, a dying mill town. Who gives a crap? And then I read it, and it was, you know, it, it's it's a very close relative to Great Expectations. There's a lot of um, similarities between the two books. And for me, though, it's, it's that examination of small-town life and about how people react to one another when they've lived with another for a really long time, which is not that different in a way, from what we're going to look at in um, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil later on. Mm-hmm. Stuff. I'm surprised that you're you're teaching it as in a writing class because I actually I, I did like the book. I had my problems with it. We've talked about this mm-hmm. before, but I found that book because of the way it's written. I found it debilitating for me as a writer because it's very. Um, it's not everything is there. Like right. you know, he describes every character. St- it's very Dickens, Dickensian mm-hmm. in that way. Like in that, what you see is what you get, and it, it's well, I don't, I don't believe it's that something what you that see was hard for me. Well, I mean, it's it's a very deep third person narrative. So he has a pretty, like you said, Dickensian voice. So it's there's a lot of what you might consider exposition, but it's narrative thought. 
specific yes. narrative thought. So the scenes are frequently very short, but the characters are processing every single word and time There's and other things to telling. think about. There's right. lots of telling, not just showing. That's and fair. that's right. And I guess for me, it was hard to get out of that habit after reading the book. Yeah. Because you know, you end you. up sort of absorbing whoever you're reading. Uh-huh. I, I had that tendency. I was like suddenly like going on five pages about, you know, one character's thoughts before they said one line of dialogue. And be like, what am I doing? I'm getting too like And well, so, you know, the the interesting thing is that the students they've been read uh, the reason we closed with this book is that we've we've read um, we read Winter's Bone by Daniel Woodrell which is one of my favorites we read Treasure Island by Sarah Levine which we talked about on the show and the students I think went and listened to our show so that they could know how to write their papers know what I like did they really um yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, You're giving away all your secrets by doing this podcast, by the way, like as a teacher. So I guarantee you, if, if your students start listening to this, they're going to all start writing Vietnam stories yeah. that they're take just, place in a small town. Winter's <laughs> Bone. They're going to know your top five favorite book. Uh, dear students, please all listen to a lot of terrible songs about baseball. Oh, <laughs> uh, see that th- that just shows that you're a communist. You know, you don't like a story song about baseball. That means you hate America. So. The I use Empire Falls as a culmination of all these different styles. This sort of um, unreliable narrator, uh, a comic style, small town America. The, these elements that existed in all these other books, and that Empire Falls uses a bit of every single one throughout gotcha. the entire thing. But it's that one issue of setting that really makes me fascinated because this is a, a book that is entirely about this place and about the characters that come from this place. The the great writer Hosip Novakovich said, setting begets character begets plot. And that is exactly what Empire Falls is about and why I can fall back into reading it after 10 years and, or not 10 years, five years, and and still get wrapped up in it because you, you start looking outside your window and imagining the lives of the people in your small town, if you live in a small town or anywhere where you are. And what seems mundane to you from the outside is probably pretty fascinating from their inside. Everyone's life is a bit more sorted and messed up than than you imagine it to be. You know, it took me until I was really an adult to appreciate setting as a literary choice and device. And actually, you know, like, it's always like the boring thing when you're studying. It's like, oh, these characters and, oh, what's the climax and blah, blah, blah. But what really turned me... What's the climax? <laughs> was, did, did Golem just show up on the podcast? Sorry. My precious. Uh, it's more Yoda. Um, Bring me the climax. Yeah, I do kind of have, like, a have weird... You <laughs> Wait, I was going to say something interesting. Uh, okay, here's what it was. Uh, it What really sold me on setting ultimately was actually doing improv because if you have a good setting, everything else is easy. Mm-hmm. And if you don't, it's like three people standing on stage looking deep into each other's eyes like, what are we doing? But if you have a clear place... It's so true, Todd, what you said. All the characters come from that. You know, that's something that, that I talk about a lot, and I think Empire Falls is a perfect example of that because even in this one city, in different parts of it, people react differently because of the politics of that specific place. Hmm. This is a great segue yes. to Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. So stick around, and we will discuss a fantastic use of setting. Hi, 
everybody. Welcome back to Literary Disco. We are about to discuss Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil by John Barrent, um, which is a nonfiction novel, as they're sometimes called, or Oof. true crime. Who the or hell calls things nonfiction novels? You've never heard that? Oh, that when Truman Capote wrote in Cold Blood, it became a popular term of the time, and this book is fits squarely into this category. It does because uh-huh. it's it's got the first person narrator though who's not who's who's in the story, who's the journalist. So Truman Capote's is is not is a little bit different. Well, whatever. Point is <laughs> It's well, but this is actually a good debate. I mean, if this yeah. book does kind of fit into a weird yes. category. A novel, yes. a novel is a novel, and nonfiction is nonfiction, and never the twain shall meet. Okay, novel writer. <laughs> but I think we should take a moment to recognize there are novelistic qualities to this yes. book that are wonderful. Be that as it may. Anyway, so let's describe the book, and then that will explain why we're already fighting. Uh, okay, so this book <laughs> is based on a true account. No, it is a true it is account. A true account. By a write, by the writer John Barrent, who went, he started to go down to Savannah just sort of to vacation. It's a little weird um, because he wants to get away from his like hot New York life. And while there, he meets all these characters, and much is described about them. At least half the book is spent, you know, on their backstories and descriptions of just the people he meets around Savannah. And then at a certain point in the novel. Um, after he has been there for a while. It is not so a novel. Already... It is nonfiction. Okay. <laughs> I said it was nonfiction. But you just called it at a certain point in the novel. All right. We'll get back to this. Just let me finish <laughs> describing why this uh, this term exists. Google it. You can Google it while I'm filling in our readers. I'm going to be looking at um, you porn until I'm interested again <laughs> in the truth of words. Go ahead. Okay. So, um... There's a murder that happens, and then the second half of the book is consumed with the trial and how this, these various figures in Savannah factor into the trial as suspects, as victims, as witnesses, and as just small-town gossips commenting on the trial. So that is the book. The reason that I referred to it as a nonfiction novel uh, and that others have done so, not just Julia Pistel, is that it really takes on the properties of, like, plot-wise of the storytelling forms of a novel. So yeah. it, it deliberately does that. Yes, that's it true. very deliberately. Creative nonfiction. And now I'm distracted because you're so mad at me <laughs> I'm, I'm, for saying I am so angry with you right now, Julia. I cannot speak. <laughs> if you call something a nonfiction novel, that's like saying, um, what is that like saying? I don't know what that's like saying. It's like it's two opposites. It's like saying a horse with stripes is a zebra. <laughs> How dare you? I might have had a stroke during the Life of Pi episode, and you guys are now making fun of me. I will give you that nonfiction novel is by far an outdated term now because there are so many books of this type. But when, I mean, this book was written in the 80s, and I mean, there had been other books like this in the past, but it is a very unique genre. It is trying to do everything a novel does with the truth. I came to this book not having any idea what it was about. This was purely because Julia said, this is what we're doing next. And I had heard the title and I knew that there was a movie made. But I started this book and I thought for the first 
whatever, 100 pages, I was like, wow, this is really going to just be a book about Savannah, Georgia, and and what Savannah's like, and what the town is like, and a little bit of the history. And I was actually fine with that, because it was yeah. already pretty entertaining. Mm-hmm. There's so many fun anecdotes, and such a great sense of setting, as we were talking about earlier. I was really excited when, after 100 or so pages, when the murder happened, and suddenly one of these characters, that, a couple of these characters that you've been following are really in a high-stakes drama for their lives, and mm-hmm. uh, it got even better at that point. But I, I love this book. I, I could have read this book. It could have gone on for another 300 pages. I would have been so happy. I, I read this book, actually, right before um, Wendy, my wife, and I went to Savannah on vacation. Um, and, the, I mean, the, the really interesting thing is, after you read the book, is that an entire tourist industry has built up around this book in Savannah. Mm-hmm. So there's this there's this undercurrent in the book which is fascinating about old Savannah and new Savannah. And mm-hmm. in particular what a couple of key players in the book namely or notably Jim Williams had to do with the revitalization of Savannah of preserving these historical homes and 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 that sort of thing. Um, and what he did and did not want he the jim williams who is uh basically the the main character that the journalist john barrent follows around or is most interested in is um he's a very wealthy uh antiques dealer basically um Mm -hmm. and he lives in the mercer house which was johnny mercer's home the musician johnny mercer which is in a beautiful square in savannah um and he's this perfect character to focus on because he and himself is sort of an ironic twist in that he's new money, right. but he obsesses over acting like old money. Mm-hmm. And he has all these antiques, and he has this whole sense of history, about, and he wants to preserve history, but then he is a new money person himself. He sort of stumbled upon these millions. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a really funny story. Anyway, sorry, go on, Todd. But it, it, it's a fascinating thing now if you go to Savannah and the entire book, and, and then also the horrible film that was made from the book, are tourist spots. Like, if you take a tourist trip through Savannah, they say, well, this is where they filmed this scene in the Midnight and Garden of Good and Evil. Um, Mm -hmm. That's my southern accent, by the way. Great accent. That would ruin it for me because so much of the joy of this book was not knowing anything about it and, and starting to feel like I bought into the conceit of the book, which is that he goes to nowhere, mm-hmm. you know, that he's like this New York writer who stumbles upon all these stories and this place. And and as he spends more and more time there, he keeps getting deeper and deeper into the underbelly of Savannah and the backstory and the history and the racism and the money and the feuds. That There's so much going on. And, and the way he sort of effortlessly seems to fall into it. It never feels like mm-hmm. I was on a mission to discover Savannah. It's sort of like, I decided to rent an apartment. And I'm sure that's all very structured and, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's very much a conceit that he's chosen upon, but I loved it. And for mm-hmm. me, there was this there was this great passage on page 57 where he's talking to a guy, an old man who used to work on the Pullman cars. Mm-hmm. And the guy talks about how he's, he mastered the art of peopleology as opposed to psychology. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, like, I was like, that's this whole book, you know? Like, this guy's a great writer because he understands people and their stories. And you just feel like John Barrett must be one of those people that uh, makes everybody very comfortable with him and Mm -hmm. that they tend to want to open up around him. 
uh, at least that's ha- that's the character, the the persona he mm-hmm. creates in this book, and it's really lovely to spend time with these people and through he, his he, eyes. He doesn't play himself as a rube either, which I think is great. No. You know, mm-hmm. he he understands society and, and the world, and he's obviously a writer, so he gets things, and he has assignments to do while he's out there too, um, and so as he's going through he in, he investigates these unreliable people which i think yeah. makes it fun for us because it's the same questions we would ask if we're smart intuitive people about what's that guy's story you know what's going on with him or there's this uh, fantastic character shabli who is a um lady uh, shabli lady shabli who is uh, a a woman in drag a man in drag um and, you know, it's this entirely unbelievable, unreliable character who he humanizes so much and you understand all of his, her choices. And if you met this person in real life, they'd just be, you know, what you see of them, this man in drag. But John Barron asks all the questions. He finds out who this person is and why they've made these choices. And it's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. Mm-hmm. That's actually the part of the book where John Barron himself becomes, he becomes much more of a character in that story Mm -hmm. but also Mm -hmm. it humanizes him as a character that he ends up being sort of her driver for a period driving her around Mm -hmm. and and you know there's a real perspective that that he's willing to hang out with essentially an outsider you know or somebody who's especially in this time in the 80s in savannah uh, a black drag queen you know that's on the fringes of this culture and while he's moving through the upper crust of society effortlessly he's also Mm -hmm. effortlessly spending time with somebody who you know is essentially discarded by this Mm -hmm. society and that to me saves this book from being too much of just a uh a travelogue or Mm -hmm. just a one segment he really covers a lot of different segments of the population he goes he he covers all the socioeconomic angles he does the very rich to the very poor all through the people that he meets well i want to ask you guys something though because i felt like i mean it's there but i just didn't feel it was there enough i didn't he talked about race and like the racial issues in savannah but i felt like he could have gone all the way there it seemed like as a writer he was so much more at home with or getting so much more detail from you know these rich white people that he you know like he's he tried. It seems like he tried to engage the black population, but either he couldn't or he wouldn't. It just like it doesn't have that feeling. Lady Shebley is a complete outlier because she takes him in. I mean, it doesn't have to be perfect. I'll completely concede that. But one of the interesting things to me, there's this really interesting subplot with Jim Williams and this other guy, and perhaps Lee this Adler. is because I work for. Lee Adler. I work for a historic house and there's just a huge historic house drama that Mm -hmm. is tearing the town (laughs) apart, which is how do you properly preserve a history of a town? And it's so interesting because Lee Adler is this huge public figure and he gets all these awards, but the town is all whispering that he's ghettoizing the black population while he claims to be, you know, like raising them up. And And if you go to Savannah... It's a really clear delineation. There is the still, yeah. Huh? There, there's the entire renovated downtown area where all of the beautiful squares are, and then once you leave the squares, it's it's one street over, and it is a ghetto, um, right. and it's very fast. And it's it's the same kind of homes, but they decide this is where the borders are of historical Savannah, and this is where it's mm-hmm. going to be really beautiful and, and touristy. But you know, I think the the thing is is that. 
this is not, though, a book that is hoping, hoping to portray all of Savannah. Savannah is a really big city, but it's to portray this one level of it. And, right. you know, this upper class that is just as dark and sordid and upsetting as anywhere else in the world. But they're mm-hmm. couched behind this false sense of um, class, uh, classiness that goes along with this vision of the Old South. But these are these are people that would have been plantation owners, you know, a hundred years. Okay, before. can I say who my favorite character was? I had a very clear favorite. Let me um, guess. Danny, Joe Odom. <laughs> no, no, no. We were both wrong. Wrong. <laughs> uh, no, I love Luther, the um, the guy who worked for the military mm-hmm. and developed poisons and oh, locked yeah. flies. This constantly threatening to poison the whole, the whole city. city. Yeah. Yes. And the city, I mean, he's clearly an insane person. And But the whole town believes that he could poison the town water supply. And he's just, he's a great character. I mean, yeah. but, but both of the ones you guys named are great characters, too. Um, they're just so clearly drawn. Or there clearly... isn't a boring character no. in this book, and that's. I no. mean, for for that to be pulled off, I mean, you look at like another nonfiction book like Moby Duck that we read. None of those characters, as many as they were all interesting in some way, because they were this family of you know people on this boat, or they all blend together. I don't remember any no. of them in a way that mm-hmm. this author took people who are seemingly normal, less interesting on the surface than the people that Moby Duck covered, and yet. I have such a strong sense of who they are. They stay with me. And a part of that might be his uh, his choice to fictionalize them or to combine mm-hmm. some characters, which he admits. Um, mm-hmm. So that might be something that, um, you know, maybe the guy who wrote Moby Duck should have done more of. <laughs> I think, though, that but, Joe Odom is a fascinating character because he yes. is... I mean, yeah. He's basically breaking into houses. Uh, he, yes. he he's squatting. He's squatting. And, and he's yeah, running. A he's a grifter, basically. So something I was reminded of in college, I we I we read these two history books from their you know ancient history books. Have you guys ever read Thucydides or Herodotus? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. No, but I, I read yes. the English Patient and saw the English okay. Patient. Well, so, so her, her, Thucydides and Herodotus are like, they're sort of these two models of historical writing, and they're compared to each other a lot, because one, Herodotus was, basically, he was a cataloger of tall tales. Like, he would mm-hmm. record anybody's story as long as it was good enough. And so his version of his historical events include, like, absolutely impossible things that never could have happened but it's so much fun to read it's like it's a real page turner and what he 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 never says like this definitely happened he just says i heard this from so and so and so i'm going to repeat it here and you you tear through this book about different empires and you know historical events that are great and then thucydides is a much more like perfect cataloger of actual events and he will record people's you know roman army speeches Verbatim, I'm putting verbatim in quotes because you, there's no way to actually know. But he claims that this was, a, and it's so much more of a dry history of like armies and the rise and fall of different civilizations. And, and it's just such a, they're, they're both good in their own way. But I was reminded of Herodotus when I was reading this book because I was like, you know, John Barron is definitely stretching his characters out and making them sort of cartoony in ways. But I like that. Mm-hmm. Like, I find that so much yes. more entertaining. And when you can tell me a good story, even if you know it's bullshit, but you're going to record it because somebody told it to you and you think it's interesting that they told it to you, I would so much rather read yeah. that book. Mm-hmm. This book is 
basically amazing gossip. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot right. of a lot of it is people talking about other people. Right. Right. And then he'll turn around in the next chapter as people gossiping about the people that were just gossiping. And uh, you know, as some a gossip myself, <laughs> I'm excited that there's a Everyone genre is, for me. Yeah. But uh I think uh, not to get back to this, you know, nonfiction novel thing, but here is one of my feelings. When I there was a certain point where I was reading it where I realized that probably like 75% of this entire book is dialogue. Mm-hmm. And I and some of it is like three pages of one person who is not John Brent talking. And at first I started to get anxiety. Like, okay, <laughs> please tell me that he record that this is recorded. You know what I mean? And then um and I believe that a lot of it could be, but probably a lot of it isn't. And I really feel like you could not publish this book now. Like, I think that... You think it would be much more of an issue that the fiction, nonfiction factor? Yes, exactly. I think it would come out and it would be Because the the characters in the book would would be fact-checking themselves. They would be publishing their own blogs about, (laughs) this did not happen. I did not say that to John Barrett. Well, more than that, I think think that it immediately becomes apparent that things are being exaggerated. Well, did you guys Google this at all? Because you guys admitted to being... Googlers of, of nonfiction. I didn't look up anything about this book. Yes, yeah. I have some Google info after, that I can share. After I read it uh, originally, yeah, because the, so this is no mystery. It's it's on the back of the book. Um, but one of the main characters, uh, uh, Jim Williams, is um, suspected of murdering um, his lover, and that's what makes up the second half of the book. Is this murder trial, um, and so. He has lots of stuff that, you know, he talks about the, the trials, and I had to know, I had to know how much, was, was any of this made up, or what was the truth, and there's much more than what was in the book. You know, there's, there's really? yeah, there's a lot more than what was in the book. And of course, also, John Berent is only, he's he is reporting from a position of bias. You know, he's reporting mm-hmm. from, basically... He's already friends yeah, with the guy. He, from from yeah. liking Jim Williams. Um, and right. he establishes that early on that, you know, these are the people that he's friends with, but he's friends with everybody. Um, you know, he's included in everything, but there is a bias. It's not, it's not like Columbine where Dave Cullen is looking at the evidence and is presenting it to you and you make a decision about what is true and what is not true. He, mm-hmm. John Barron is a character in this murder. You know, he is with all of these people. And so I, I had to know more about it. So I did a little bit of that. And, of course, people like Lady Chablis have become celebrities in their own right. Lady Chablis played herself in the movie. Um, no way. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's there's a lot of truth that has come out of it. And no one has said, you know, this is all made up or anything. It all happened. I did. I Googled the hell out of this when I finished <laughs> it because I really wanted to know, um, you know, which characters – were real and if they were composite or whatever. And most of them, I think, have pseudonyms. Mm -hmm. Um, So they're harder to find. But if you look deep enough, you can figure it out. So I read an article saying that um, John Brent was concerned that people, the people of Savannah would not like the book. But what it what happened was everyone, the book itself became a center of gossip. Right. Like, oh, do you know this person in the book? Mm. Or do you know who this pseudonym is? Because I do, you know. And that is, the book itself is is just a part of the same gossip. Mm. Like, no more or no less than anything else that happens in it. 
And you can go tour Jim Williams' home now. You know, it's, it's open for tours for like $13. You can go tour his house. But there's all these houses on all these squares that you can go and visit. Which, you know, we did, when we went to Savannah, and, and we, we didn't go there because of the book. We had always wanted to go to Savannah. We, like, um, we just wanted to go there and eat, mostly. Um, <laughs> but, you know, there's, there's a, the, the social stuff that you read in the book, you can still sense it when you talk to the people. It's a very odd place in that way. But there's also this great amount of pride in this book, which, you know, digs up the dregs of what is the top of society there. You can buy this book. I swear to God, every single place you walk into in Savannah, you can buy that book. Every hmm. store, every restaurant, every hotel, that book is on the counter and you can buy it. Which also makes me think, I need to write a book about Palm Springs that they'll stock in every single store. Um, any final thoughts on Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil? Uh, well, I think um, those of you who are out there listening, once you read it, um, if you guys want to talk about the actual trial and stuff, which we didn't talk about in, in the, um, the aftermath, because we didn't want to spoil what is the, you know, the, the end of the book, we're happy to talk about it on our Facebook and our Twitter and whatnot. So we will, we will respond to your thoughts on those things um, on the old social media. Definitely. And, and if I can recommend one thing to anyone, it's go to Savannah and, um, and go on the Haunted House Tour. I did that, and um, it was pretty scary. Wait, did you go to Jim Williams' house? We couldn't get in that day. Um, it was closed that day. But we did. Oh, you know what we did go to? And here comes the button. Uh, what we did go to is the, one of the oldest temples in America. There is a, a, a synagogue in Savannah that dates from the 1700s. And so my lovely wife and I went on a tour of it. And uh, I asked the woman taking us on the tour, are there any of the original families that are still part of, uh, you know, part of the synagogue? And she turns to my wife, who's not Jewish, and says, no, because they married out. It's like, okay, <laughs> wow, well, well, all right. And Wendy was like, really? <laughs> really? You're going to go at me? Poor Wendy. Oh, yeah. Then we shot ourselves a, a, a bisexual, so that was a good time. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, that's, that's part of the book. That's not, that's not, <laughs> we did not commit a hate crime in, <laughs> in Savannah. That's, that happens in the book. You just made that up. I swear to God, it happens in the book. <laughs> Like we said earlier, follow us on Twitter at Literary Disco and like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Join us in two weeks when we do our end of the year episode. Thanks for listening.